This is an ABC podcast. G'day, I'm Michael Cathcart, and you're so very welcome to The Stage Show. Today, a musical called Bring It On, about a team of American cheerleaders. The music is joyful, it's pumpy, but why do a show about cheerleaders? Isn't that all a bit yesterday? I'll be asking that question later in the show. But first, an epic tale, which is all our own. It's almost 10 years since Opera Australia gave us a full-scale production of a brand new work, so there's been quite a buzz around the opera's latest show, Whiteley, an operatic telling of the life of the flamboyant and troubled Australian artist Brett Whiteley and his wife Wendy. The show features huge projections of Whiteley's paintings with uh, gloriously inventive music by the composer Elena Katz-Chernan. Let's listen to some. Yes, that's just from the introduction. You know we're in for something momentous. Elena Katz-Chernan joins us right now. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Michael. I love the way that's pumping along. We know that when the curtain (laughs) rises and the lights come up, something of great moments is going to unfold before us. I really wanted something self-assured, something brash and something intoxicating, intoxicated, just something to put, you know, people in a good mood. So the libretto dares to take in the sweep of Whiteley's life from his boyhood to his death. It's by Justin Fleming. Justin is a playwright, he's a screenwriter. You know him best for his very witty and smart translations of Moliere, but he's performed all over the world. He's somewhere in faraway places enjoying a production of his play right now. He's in London at the moment. Hello, Justin. Hello, Michael. How are you? I'm in top form, thanks. Justin, how did this come about, this production? Well, uh, from my point of view, Lyndon Terracini took me to lunch at the Sydney Cafe above Customs House. Lyndon Terracini runs the opera. He does. And um, this is three years ago. I didn't know what it was about. And he said to me over lunch, just look out at that harbour and what artist comes to mind? Fortunately, I didn't say Ken Doan. (laughs) But... um, (laughs) I uh, I said Brett Whiteley. He well, said correct, uh, correct answer. Right. You know, will you will you write the the libretto? I said, oh, of course. Right. So you, you got the gig. I got the gig, <laughs> and then uh, we started um, a few workshops to road testing. So a lot was rewritten. So it was a case of eventually finding what to leave out and what to leave in. So was it always going to, sorry, Justin, was it always going to be the life? Because, you know, you could have said, uh, let's find a moment of drama and emotion in the centre of his life and build an opera out of that. But instead you've gone from his boyhood through to his death. It's a Oh, well, sort of, but there are leaps along the way. And also he goes deeply into his mind in a lot of scenes. Uh, so that really it's a kind of, um, there's an essence of Brett Whiteley as well as what happened in his life. But of course, one of the uh, criteria for this work was that the art itself would be part of the story. And the art inescapably tells his life also because of the locations, the people, the events depicted. So it was inescapable really to to use his life or moments in his life, I would call it, which I thought dramatised the, the the truth about him. 
And Elena Katschen, and how did you get drawn into this? Did you also get a splendid lunch from Lyndon Terragini? <laughs> Can you believe it? It's exactly how it happened. <laughs> we were having lunch and I just said, oh, I would really love to write an opera one day. I've never written one for main stage um, and I would love it to be about Australian story of some sort, about Australian person. Um, and he just said, in the next second, he said, oh, Brad Whiteley. <laughs> it just came out of him and it just happened. He must have thought about it before. I think, because that was later than three years ago. And it just kind of all fitted in. It suddenly was happening. And I couldn't believe how quickly the, the ball started rolling. Well, let's let's hear a little more. This is one of the uh, moments when Whiteley is living in Italy. This is in the early 60s. So we're quite early in the opera. And he sees that Australia isn't represented at the Venice Biennale. <laughs> There is nothing for my country. Robert Hughes is the name. I am racial native race. We must educate him. We must educate him there singing. This is Robert Menzies who needs to be educated. <laughs> so that's Lee Melrose as Brett Whiteley, Alexander Hargraves as Robert Hughes. And you heard Whiteley at the start of that sequence say that he's at the Venice Biennale and we are not represented, he says. We are not represented. He's so angry that mm. Australia isn't spoken for. There was also Ruth Strutt there as the Biennale judge. And we should say that this is a recording made for us. While the show was in rehearsal, it sounds pretty damn good in rehearsal. Um, <laughs> does, Alana, so it, your yeah. music is like a, a dynamo right through this play. It's pumpy, it's playful, sometimes it's dark, sometimes it's lyrical. It's but always driving, surging forward in that way. What was your musical starting point? How did you think your way into this? Interestingly, the first scene that actually was composed in the very first workshop was the one about John Christie's murders, which impressed upon Brett Whiteley that story so much that he made so many paintings about it, a whole series of them. And that scene with ghosts and um, just very dramatic narration just came to me as, as the very starting point. And from then everything started falling into place. I really wanted music that represents Brett's character, his obsessiveness and its energy and his flamboyancy, his fun, sense of zaniness, a sense of questioning. So there's a lot of also mysterious music, especially when Wendy comes into play. There is this sort of mystery, delicateness, love. We have a duet between them and it's full of love and lyricism and, and also playfulness, exactly that. Um, there is a lot of changing of moods. And mm. I also get, actually, to be honest, I get very quickly 
perfectly bored. So I need to change moods all the time as well. So I was lucky that the scenes were changing quickly. And I had, for example, the scene of course, being critics, and I created a tango for them. So that was fun for me to do something um, that's in, in instantly recognizable kind of rhythm. So there is a kind of, um, there's a kind of extreme that you've laid out. On the, on the one hand, there's the gentleness that's represented by his relationship with Wendy, his wife, who's a form of stability. And, and then at the other end, there is this, this idea that to be an artist, you have to go into the darkness. And as you were saying, Elena, one of the major set pieces in the show is this story about uh, Christy, the murderer. He becomes obsessed with the idea of this man who had murdered these women and then, I suppose, mm. bricked them up in, in the walls and so on. Can we just talk a little bit about that dark side? because it's one of the themes that really pulses right through uh, the libretto and the music. I mean, Whiteley is is drawn to the grave of uh, the poet Baudelaire, who who famously almost debased himself in order to mm. expose himself to what he regarded as uh, artistic energy. Justin, do you want to take this as a theme? What, 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 what's it about, this idea that the artist has to pick the flowers of evil, as Baudelaire put it? Well, yes. He said you have to derange the senses. And of course, what Brett Whiteley did was to wait patiently for nature to reveal to him some great glimpse. And then he had to pounce on it. And in order to do that, he said he had to distort it. So you find the image and then you distort it. One of the wonderful ones is the head of John Christie, the murderer, that he fixed in his view, put onto the canvas and then distorted it. And it's so frightening. It looks like a respectable doctor, but with a twisted, dangerous soul inside that figure. But the important thing about going into that dark side was that he said... To Wendy, I want to locate evil. I want to be able to put my finger on something and say that is pure evil. There's quite an audience for the idea that you can only create art out of angst and despair and of going to the dark places. Is that true for you both at Artists? What about you, Alana? Because it always seems to me that your music has a kind of underlying pulse of joy. Well, I'm actually, I always consider myself a little bit of a kind of a comedy writer. Comic opera is actually the right fit for me. Um, but um, at the same time, even comedy would have darkness in it so that it works. You can't just laugh all the time. You have to kind of have this mix of feelings and contradictions and contrasts. And the word I had mostly in this whole opera was to be bold. You know, be bold. If you go funny, go really funny. If it's really dark, go really dark. As black as it can be, as gloomy and, you know, really empty sometimes of anything void you know going into deep darkness and so and and then when it's light it's really funny sometimes you know yeah. and I really love funny you've certainly side. got you've certainly got that range I, I suppose I'm asking you as an artist to reflect on your own practice and to see whether in your soul there is this idea that it's only when you open your soul to angst Ooh. that you can be profound absolutely possible mm. but both you know the angst uh, definitely draws a lot out of me and then I get really tired of that and I need some other side. I need right. lightness as well. So both. Actually, just something vivid inspires me. Can you write out of joy, Justin, as well as out of darkness? Oh, absolutely. Oh, I, I knew the I answer. Love, <laughs> I, I, I find it joyous even to be writing the dark side. Right. But we have a lot of humour in this work as well. One of the 
stories that many people remember is when a policeman charged him with driving under the influence. And where had he been? He said, well, I've been drinking in the universe. The policeman assumed it was a pub called the universe. But when he, <laughs> when he took it on appeal, he said to the judge, no, no, no. What I meant was I was inhaling the cosmos. <laughs> and the judge said, absolutely, appeal upheld. <laughs> An artist thinks differently from a policeman. That's right. Let's hear a bit more of this lovely production. One of his most ambitious pieces was a piece he painted in America called The American Dream. It's enormous. It's 18 adjoining mm. panels, two and a half metres high, 22 metres wide. It just goes on and on and on. It's like the hoarding on the side of a building site that he's come along and painted and screwed things into and put little lights in it it's, and mm. painted um, collages onto. So he tried to sell it after he'd, he'd made it in America, but it didn't find favour with the US art dealers. And you capture mm. that moment in the opera. Let's listen. Behold the Frank exchange of views with the art dealer Frank Lloyd of the Marlborough Gallery. This is from the opera Whiteley. Frank there performed by Brad Cooper and Brett by Lee Melrose. Composed by Alana Katz-Chernan with libretto by Justin Fleming. And you're meeting both of them here on the stage show. Alana, I could really feel that urban sound of New York pulsing away there behind <laughs> behind the singing. Uh, and I thought I could sense some influence of, I don't know, Bernstein or Gershwin there. Are you, dra- are you drawing on them when you Not at that? all. Interesting. Um, some people said that, but actually I was trying to create this sort of clankiness of the city that has traffic and that's the noise because in the whole opera there's a lot of tonality, there's edginess, there's atmospheres, there's different textures of sounds, but there needed to be for New York, I felt something that's percussive and noisy. And especially when he says American dream, the word, I wanted to be exactly opposite of what the word dream is. So um, to make it as noisy and as kind of, I'm not saying unpleasant, but a little bit threatening and and aggressive and um, not having um, much melody at all. That's why I'm not sure Bernstein and Gershwin if it fits because they did have a lot of melody and that's actually none Mm. in, but there is rhythm. You're right. There's maybe a little bit of this kind of syncopation rhythm that may remind you of that. Well, thanks to the two of you for coming in and talking about it. It's such an exciting piece to listen Pleasure, to. Mike. And um, I'm, I haven't seen it on stage because I'm not in the right city to see that. But uh, it's certainly been wonderful to have it in my ears. Thank you, Elena. Thank you very much, Michael. And thank you, Justin Fleming. Thank you, Michael, very much indeed. We've been talking about the opera Whiteley. You can see it at the Sydney Opera House until the 30th of July. It's presented by Opera Australia. On RN, this is The Stage Show with Michael Cathcart.
things in life for free But you can give them to the birds and bees I want money That's what I want Yes, all this week here on Arts at RN You're getting a very intimate look at artists and their relationship to money, that's what they want in a special series called The Cost of Art. Today, in part two, ABC producer Hannah Reesh speaks with theatre makers. I'm sitting in Melbourne's Malthouse Theatre, watching a dress rehearsal for Wake in Fright, a new adaptation of the cult outback thriller. You know, there's the 1971 movie and 1961 novel of the same name. Actor Zara Newman in a kind of bear suit, sits amongst the audience as this song plays before she descends on the stage, takes off the suit and starts handing out the audience earplugs. You can pass this around, you can pass them around to any, any way you like, like clockwise, anti-clockwise, you know, we're in, we're in a theatre, right? It's a space of limitless creativity! So, but um, I'm not here to see the play. I'm actually here to speak to the playwright and director who created this production, Declan Green. Declan Green has been resident artist for the last three years at Malthouse and it's a full-time paid gig where he develops new plays, is part of the programming team and makes his own projects at the Malthouse, like this one. Malthouse have sort of allowed me to really kind of customise the job according to my workload at the time outside the company. Like every other artist, it's just sort of like a combination of gigs and various types of hustles. How comfortable do you feel financially at the moment and how key is having that Malthouse gig to sort of your both economic and creative security? Before I was working at Malthouse, I worried about money a lot more and the hustle was a lot more real in terms of like midway through the previous year, just going, what do I have on next year? How am I going to hit enough money to make my rent? But when I was offered this position at Malthouse, it sort of put me in a position of security that I think I'd never really had up to that point as an artist. Yeah. How did that feel when you finally had that security? Oh my God, like amazing. It, it was an incredible thing. And I think actually when you get to a particular level of the main stage theatre industry or the commercial sector, you'll find that a lot of the people who are really making bank as artists are actually people who've managed to uh, rise up via a lot of independent work that they've been able to do or stake their reputation on, which has been bankrolled in some way by a particular kind of income stream they're used to having from their parents or through through whatever other means. But I never really had that. So, mm. yeah, that was legitimately when I got the multi-star, it was literally the first time I'd been like, cool, I guess I can eat for a while now. Or <laughs> I, can, I can not be worried about being evicted from my house or whatever. Declan, along with Ashlanders, make up the theatre company Sisters Grimm. And they've made a lot of award-winning queer experimental theatre. But he says they were always able to fund their work. That's because I think the way Sisters Grimm was founded was essentially like re- in recognition of the resources we had available to ourselves at the time, which was nothing. When we started in 2006, we were essentially like two extremely broke homosexuals in a kind of sort of collective community of other weird broke queers. And we were kind of like, okay, so we know we want to make art. We know we don't have money to create the kind of like polished fringe theatre of a lot of uh, other people making independent theatre in this city right now. But we're just going to literally look at what we have available to us, which often was like literal garbage. We drove trucks to tips and (laughs) picked out rubbish. We we would then kind of put in self-made spaces or whatever like that because we didn't have money for theatre hire and stuff like that. So it was very important for us to never feel like we didn't have the money to do what Mm -hmm. we could do. The other flip side of it, though, was that if you don't have money, one thing you have to have is time. So what that kind of meant, especially during those early Sisters Grimm years, 
was that there was a particular kind of vow of poverty that we took on to work in that way because it meant that we didn't have time to, well, for, for me especially, I didn't have time to do any other jobs. And I think at the time I was really like, yeah, cool, this is what my life will be and I'm chill with it. Like, I'm actually okay with the idea that I'm just going to be extremely, extremely poor. And that was me in my early 20s and I don't know that I could actually do that now mm. <laughs> that I'm 34. There must have been some rent involved. You needed to pay for some things. Yeah, I, w- I would so... have jobs, but they would be like call centre jobs mm-hmm. and I spent periods of time on the doll. I did a lot of shoplifting. That was really just part of the hustle. It was really just like, this is how I'm going to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Excitingly, Declan is working with Sisters Groom again as they develop a big new project and it's a musical. I think one of the, the sort of interesting things that's happened with Sisters Groom, though, is, you know, at a certain point, major theatre companies started asking us to work with them and we started pitching. And that sort of meant that we had to really radically redefine our aesthetic and go, OK, like, we can't just pretend that we don't have money now because we do have money. So we've actually got to figure out what we are. One of the other artists that I've spoken to for this project described the arts sector as a sector in crisis. Mm-hmm. Is that how you would describe it? I think it depends on which sector you're talking about within the arts. The only one I can really speak to in terms of theatre is um, the particular part of or or stratosphere of the industry that I'm in, emerged artists or mid-career artists. And um, I definitely see a level of crisis there at the moment. I see a lot of my peers giving up and feeling like they can't make sustainable careers as artists anymore. And then I think there's another particular crisis, which is about dissatisfaction with the kind of cultural uh, homogeneity of uh, the theatre industry in general, the fact that there are kind of like white, cis, able-bodied, male-identifying perspectives given privilege in the kind of upper echelons of the industry. Declan, by his accounts, was one of the lucky ones, able to pay the bills and mount his work, both at Malthouse and elsewhere. But what about others in the performing arts sector? The Australia Council's Making Art Work survey found that artists with a disability earn significantly less than their colleagues with no disability. So I spoke to dancer Anna Seymour, who is deaf, through Auslan interpreter Maxine Buxton. Anna is a newly appointed assistant producer at Melbourne Fringe, where she works part-time. I found it difficult to find that balance um, with my art practice and also, I guess, with my producing work. And I've got some other side casual things happening as well. So, yeah, it's a balance. What are those other side casual things? So I have some freelance dance work, so projects mostly. And I do some um, casual high school teaching as well. And also, I guess for the last six months, I've been working with a deaf man from Bhutan and providing him with some um, Auslan and English tutoring, actually. So between all these different things, do you have enough time to dedicate to your art? Is the balance right at the moment? I mean, I would love to have more time (laughs) to focus on my art. In terms of being an art practitioner, it's a lot that I do on the weekends and at the nights. And working at Melbourne Fringe, my day job is arts, but it's in a different area. So arts is my night job in a sense now. <laughs> so I guess I have less time for actual dancing at the moment, but I, I feel like it's only temporary and I'm developing other skills. What kind of other jobs have you had before this one? Wow, <laughs> so many. How long have you got? <laughs> I worked as a waitress for many years, um, barista, did bar work. That was when my art practice was just starting and just starting to take off. I was doing that waitressing and hospitality work. And I thought I didn't really want to keep working in that industry and be an artist on the side. You know, I wanted something more just challenging. So I decided to study a grad dip 
um, of education. And it was so valuable because it meant that I could work teaching um, as a casual, often in a deaf school, but then I would always keep working on the side in the arts. Anna told me that a significant challenge for her to find work in the arts is the lack of funding for interpreters. I'd probably say about eight years ago, it was immensely difficult. There was no funding available for interpreters at all, really nothing. And I applied for a grant from the Australia Council at the time and was successful with that. And I used some of that money to pay for interpreters. And that was just a massive breakthrough for me in terms of my career. But then there were a lot of changes happening with the Employee Assistance Fund or EAF, which is a government funded program where people who work can get $6,000 worth of support or workplace modifications, such as interpreters. So I would use that for interpreters, but $6,000 a year does not go very far. It's basically nothing. What are you meant to do if you're trying to do work and you need an interpreter? Where are you meant to get funding for that then? Well, I guess it should be the organisation that you work for. You know, access should be part of the budget. If I'm if I'm being hired, I feel like it's the organisation's responsibility to provide access to me as an employer. But I do know in the arts realm and with arts projects, it's tricky because people don't always think about interpreting or an access budget when they're putting together a program or a project. And I think it's not until after I come on board, people say, oh, I need interpreters. And then there's that realisation of how expensive it is, which is an old story for me, but is new for a lot of people. In 2012, Anna co-founded the Delta Project with Joe Dunbar, and it's a company for both hearing and deaf dancers. Then in 2016, Joe Dunbar stepped down. You know, there wasn't as much work, that we didn't really have any funding, there wasn't money at all, really. And I made a decision sort of shortly after to take it on board a little bit more seriously without any money, but as the artistic director um, and do the admin and that sort of thing in my own time. But I've recently applied for some funding and I was successful in that. So that's from Creative Victoria and the Australia Council. So that's to develop some new work, a new project. So we have some funds now. We've, you know, got a little bit of momentum and I guess we'll see what happens post-November. I'm excited. <laughs> Arts Access Australia says that artists without a disability earn $21,100 extra a year than artists with a disability. Does that ring true to your experience of the arts? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt, I can certainly believe that. For me personally, I've not necessarily been in a situation where I've been paid less. It's more about the lack of opportunities for artists with disabilities or with deaf artists. So if we're not given the opportunity to work as a professional level practising artist because of those access or attitudinal barriers, then we're going to earn less. What could be done to make things more viable and more sustainable for someone like yourself? Look, I think it's more about societal change and attitudinal change and, you know, changing people's perspective about people with disabilities and what they're capable of and what they can contribute. I think there's been a lot of awareness and attitudinal improvements, but a lot of that is still very deep-rooted in society, people's beliefs about uh, people with disabilities or deaf people and not necessarily perceiving them as capable professional artists and people who can contribute to the society. So I really feel it's that that needs to change first and foremost. It's not just individuals like Anna Seymour struggling to make ends meet and find balance, but it's also organisations like Urban Theatre Projects, which is based in Bankstown in Western Sydney. It's a 40-year-old independent arts company with a focus on social impact, dedicated to making work with, for and by community in Western Sydney. 
like Black Box. I wish there was a better way of me knowing where I came from. I wish... I guess it's, it's a mystery for me, I guess, so... I'm trying to find this for myself and for my family. I mean, we can talk as much as we like, but it's no one's going to listen. Urban Theatre Projects has mounted Black Box a few times and it's a state-of-the-art surround space that audience members can enter into and then listen to stories told by First Peoples. I spoke with Artistic Director Jessica Olivieri about the Urban Theatre Projects and how they're tackling funding. Well, we are multifunded by both Create and OSCO and we have really good relationships with private organisations and individual donors. So I would say that that's the mix that we uh, see as being sustainable. Having said that, the private and corporate funding shouldn't ever replace the government funding. It's really important that there's a mix, that the government is also funding culture and uh, investing in the arts. Urban Theatre Projects was among one of the, among the arts organisations who actually received four-year Cancel funding in 2016, that year mm. when so many arts organisations lost their funding. Yeah. Why do you think Urban Theatre Projects was able to succeed then and do you think that you'll be able to succeed in the future with Council funding? I mean, it's something that you cannot ever take for granted. There is, you know, the rates of unfunded excellence at the Australia Council are skyrocketing. So there are so many uh, deserving projects, artists and organisations who are not being funded and as a result who are no longer able to produce work. So it's something that the sector is constantly attending to. It's not something you can ever sit back and relax about your funding situation. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about your Young Residence Program and Urban Theatre Projects now. Can you describe that program? So we have the UTP Ensemble, which is a group of young artists who are going to be coming together over the next few years to make work with incredible um, contemporary Australian artists. Um, We've then got the Bilingual Kids Lab, which is in partnership with the Arab Theatre Studio. Then we've got a number of residencies. One of those is Nancy Dennis, who's an incredible artist. And then we have a whole lot of other programs that kind of feed into that, but they're the main ones. And is this kind of a response or a way to make things a little bit more sustainable for young practitioners or emerging practitioners? Absolutely. It's really difficult to be a young emerging practitioner at the moment in the current funding situation. And if we don't nurture those young people um, who are emerging and developing their voice, then we just won't have an arts ecology in 10 years' time when, when we're looking to that generation to lead us. How can we make things more sustainable for young and emerging practitioners of theatre and other arts? I think one way Urban Theatre Projects is attempting to do that is through supporting young artists, taking a chance on them. You know, there's a risk involved in working with young people who haven't had a track record, which is often why they are left out of a funding situation when there is a retraction of funding because they're not the sort of easiest to fund, I suppose. But it's really important that people are investing in those in those young people. And I think that it's really important to remember when we talk about this that art is not a luxury, to sort of paraphrase Audre Lorde. It's something that is incredibly important to the well-being of individuals and social cohesion, and it's something that we need. So it's essential. It's an essential part of life. Speaking with Jessica, Anna and Declan made me feel like there is cause for optimism. Whether it's Urban Theatre Project's Young Resident Program, the new funding for Anna Seymour's Delta Project, or simply the success story of Declan Green and Sisters Grimm. 
but all expressed a concern for new and emerging voices in the arts and what might happen to those voices in the face of funding pressures. And that's something I pick up tomorrow on The Art Show when the cost of art continues. Urban Theatre Projects, Jessica Olivieri there was uh, talking to us. You also heard from theatre maker Declan Green and dancer Anna Seymour, and they were talking to RN producer Hannah Reish. And you can listen to other episodes in Hannah's series, The Cost of Art. There's a link on our website. I'm Michael Cathcart. This is The Stage Show. On The Stage Show, it's time for the latest arts news with Claire Nichols. Hi, Claire. Hello, Michael. Uh, You know, there's no doubt that working in the performing arts can present some really unique challenges for performers and other industry professionals. And of course, these can take a toll on well-being and mental health. I guess if you think about the demands of being on tour for a long period of time, away from family and friends, or the pressure that comes with getting things ready for opening night. So... I have some good news on that front, Michael. The Arts Centre in Melbourne has launched a wellbeing helpline for people in the industry who might need some extra support. This initiative comes through the Centre's Arts Wellbeing Collective Group and it's set up a phone line that will be open 24 hours a day with access to qualified professionals who can help people work through mental health or general wellbeing concerns. And if you want to give this hotline a call, the number is one 800 959500. Yeah, that's one 800 And we'll talk more about that helpline on next week's show. Now, in other news, um, <laughs> ushers in the West End are wearing cameras. What's this about? Well, sadly, this is because of poor audience behaviour on the West End. There have been a few high-profile incidents over there with disputes in the audience, sometimes between theatre-goers and ushers, and sometimes between different audience members themselves. And to that end, some theatres in the UK have been trialling this camera system where ushers wear body cameras pinned to their chests. These cameras have a forward-facing screen so audiences can actually see that they're being filmed. Um, They've been trialled at various venues under a pilot program and the organisations Society of London Theatre and UK Theatre, which led this trial, are now encouraging other theatres to use the cameras as a way of de-escalating incidents. Mm, I hope they don't make things worse. Anyway, I guess the Mm. trial will... Uh, find out how that all happens. Uh, now, there's a quick, a couple of quick bites of music theatre news. Yeah, firstly, uh, Paul McCartney is writing his first ever musical. He's been hired to write the songs for a stage adaptation of that feel-good Christmas film, It's a Wonderful Life. That musical is due to open late next year. And, Michael, we also need to farewell the man who bought us these famous lyrics. The sun will come out tomorrow bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun that is of course tomorrow from the musical Annie those lyrics were written by Martin Charnin who has died at the age of 84 now this man was a real force behind the creation of the musical he came up with the initial idea to adapt the little orphan Annie comic for the stage he wrote the lyrics and he directed the musical, which made its Broadway debut in 1977, and it ran for almost six years in its initial run on Broadway. So that's a final exit for Martin Chan and Claire Nichols there with Arts News. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It's 50 years since the moon landing. To celebrate, stargazing will look back at this remarkable event. We'll see what it took to get there and we'll imagine the future of space travel. 
I'm Professor Brian Cox, and I want you to join me and Julia Zamiro as we go stargazing on ABC iView. Well, Bell Shakespeare's latest offering is the Shakespearean rom-com Much Ado About Nothing. This is the story of two young couples and their romantic misadventures. You've got Claudio and Hero. They're engaged to be married, but Claudio is tricked into denouncing Hero as unfaithful. That's a practical joke, apparently. Uh, meanwhile, Beatrix and Benedict are two witty rivals who enjoy putting each other down, and everyone can see they're perfect for each other except for them. Bell have promoted this as a saucy, razor-sharp battle of wits. Theatre critic Tim Byrne saw the Melbourne premiere last week. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me back, Michael. Now, this is a bit complex, this plot. There are two love stories, aren't there? First of all, you've got Claudio and Hero. What's the the concise version of what happens with them. Well, Claudio um, is falls in love with her at the beginning of the play and, and decides to marry her and then is tricked into thinking that on the day before her, the wedding that she's been unfaithful. And so he goes to the church and then during the ceremony he basically slut shames her and he and then when he finds out that but when he believes that she's died, he has no remorse whatsoever for what he's done. Eventually the trick is revealed and they marry. So it's a bit of a tricky one to play in a modern context. It all turns out happily. It all turns out happily in the end, yes. But there is a sort of... I mean, the whole thing comes about because of a kind of practical joke. It's, it's the sort of... It reminds me of the sort of practical joke that bully prefects would have played at, at a private school. Yeah, that's sort of true. And in some ways, the character of Don John, the, the villain, is yeah. supposed to, in some ways, encapsulate the, the bullying entirely. But it, it does. it is true that the bullying does tend to leak out into some of the other male characters. Yeah, yeah it certainly does. Now, we've also got Benedict and Beatrix. Yeah, um, that's right. They're the subplot, technically, but everybody thinks, when they think of Much Ado About Nothing... They're the they ones th- we remember. That's exactly I'm right. I'm not really interested in Claudio and Hero. No. I've never been interested. I can never even remember their names. No. It's Benedict and Beatrix, remember, because yeah. they're both smart asses and they love putting each other down yeah, that's because they've right. got the same sense of humour. Yeah, it's a, it's a gender war uh, in a comic mode, I suppose you could say. <laughs> Uh, and, 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 and you're right, it's incredibly witty and incredibly sharp. Sharp. Well, it's supposed to be. Not, not, it's not always in performance, as we, as we found out uh, the other night. Um, Bell's, Bell's new production, directed by James Evans, falls flat on a, on a number of, in a number of ways. Now, um, we um, both saw Pop Pop Globe's production of this play in 2017, right. which was hysterical. Which was absolutely joyous, and I think that's the, the key word. Um, it can be done with joy, and you certainly don't have to shy away from, from the darkness. You can, you can still do it, um, but the play needs to feel fun, at least some of the time. Uh, and I think... Um, and even even with all the Me Too um, uh, interpretations that we can see happening now, you still have to have that element of joy. And I, I think that Evans makes a critical, uh, a, a misguided decision, in my opinion, by opening the play at the end, where Claudio is, uh, tri- is again, another trick, tricked into believing that he's marrying somebody else. He's suddenly very remorseful. And it turns out that he's actually marrying Hero. She hasn't died at all. This is a very doer and kind of lugubrious way to start Much Ado About Nothing and the play never really recovers in my Yeah, opinion. it has this melancholy yeah. agenda. I mean, the play, the cast have made it very clear that they wanted the production to highlight what they call the 
toxic masculinity, which they see as inherent in the play. So I suppose the question is, do you think Shakespeare was on board anyway, that he's holding up this masculine behaviour for some kind of scrutiny? I think definitely that's true. I mean, I think the only problem for, for us in these days is that is that Claudio and, and, and a couple of other characters get off scot-free for the way that they, be, be, they, they treat Hero. That's difficult to play, it's true. That in, in some ways it almost makes it one of Shakespeare's problem plays uh, in, in contemporary performance. But I think joy, uh, ultimately that gender war, uh, the joyous comic mode of the gender war should win out. The audience should go home feeling that and, and they certainly, I don't think they do in this production. Were there standout performances for you? My my favourite performance, there were a couple of performances. I, I I, I wasn't massively keen on Zinzio Kenyo's Beatrice, but I did like uh, Duncan Rag's uh, Benedict. Um, and uh, funnily enough, the role that I find really irritating most of the time is the is the cop, the kind of Keystone cop Dogbury, played here by a woman, uh, Mandy. Uh, Mandy Bishop, and she she actually made a role that I find really unfunny. Uh, she made it hilarious, and in fact, the joy that, that we need to see in the play came almost entirely through her. Yeah, so she appears after interval. She appears after, after interval, exactly right. The, the set, costume, sound design, well, any standouts there? The problem with... with uh, Bell's touring productions is that they're designed to play in Dubbo and uh, and uh, and tiny little t- hall, uh, halls throughout the country, which is wonderful. But when they come to the big venues, when they come to the art centre or the, the the opera house, they tend to look incredibly paltry and kind of cheap. And this one I thought was particularly ugly. Not quite as bad as their touring production of Julius Caesar last year, but certainly I think uh, it's a bit of a problem uh, when they have these productions that are designed to be very small, move. Into, into venues very quickly. When they when we see them in these large venues, they tend to look a bit shabby. It sounds as though your main concern with this is that the political agenda overwhelmed the play. I think it's a good point. I think Shakespeare is always ahead of us and he he knows what he's doing. And I think if we try and force issues on to, to Shakespeare, it, 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 it all often backfires. And in this case, they, I don't think they needed to push the, mas- the toxic masculinity because the play is certainly aware of it. Uh, I mean, they, they said themselves, I, re- I read an interview with Zinzi in which he said, you know, Shakespeare is not all-knowing, he's not all-wise. Yes, I think that's a good point. Um, but I think we should always be very approach it with great care when we think that we know more than he does. Uh, we should always... Uh, uh, at least listen to what to truly what he's really saying, and I think that uh, there's a there's a real tendency these days to just ride roughshod over the subtleties in Shakespeare's work and the contradictions and the contradictions. It's, it's, and it's living with contradictions. That's a very very good. That's point, what Michael. I think. The issue I think is. you're totally right. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. No problems. Tim Byrne is a theatre critic. You can read his review of the show in this month's ABR, that's Australian Book Review, but also you can make up your own mind. You can see Bell Shakespeare's production of Much Ado. It's playing in Melbourne until the 27th of July, and then it's on a huge tour. It goes to Warrnambool, Bendigo, Perth, Albany, Bunbury, Mandurah, Mildura. It goes on and on and on to Rocky in Queensland, Mackay. I mean, they just go everywhere, and they end up in Sydney in October and November. And I, if you've seen it, I'd love to to know what you made of the show. Maybe you absolutely disagree with what we've said. Maybe you love the show. If so, do get in touch. You can send us a voice memo. You just send that to our website, which is artsonrn at abc.net.au. What did you make of Much Ado About Nothing? I'm Michael Cathcart. This is RN. You're listening to The State Show. A musical about cheerleading in the USA. Does that sound tacky? 
I guess it depends on what you think about cheerleading. Bring It On is a musical about cheerleaders. It's co-written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, the multi-award-winning American composer and writer who wrote the smash hit Hamilton. So it's worth a look. The show actually has had hit productions on Broadway and in the West End. So would anyone in Australia want to see a show which is so far removed from how we do sport and I think how we do gender? Let's find out. The show's playing in Melbourne with Perth and Sydney to follow. The director is Alistair Smith. Alistair, welcome. Good morning. We've got performers uh, Bailey Carson. Hello. Marty Alex. Hello. And Samantha Brusesi. Yes, that was nice. Thank you very much. (laughs) Now, look, cheerleading is a very... American thing, isn't it? I mean, I can't imagine a high school or university in Australia embracing cheerleading because to me it seems so locked in the 1950s and frankly a kind of sort of sexist view of girls as the kind of decorative element while the boys do the sort of real sport. Do you want to talk me out of that view I have of cheerleading? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Cheerleading is so much more sporty than what you could ever imagine. I used to be a cheerleader, actually. I went to the World Champs in 2007. Oh, so there are, Austra- there are Australian cheerleaders? Yes, there I are Australian cheerleaders. We have oh. four, four of them in the cast yes. as well, and they're incredible. Oh, yes. They yeah. do the most crazy stunts. Right. Um, it's so athletic. It's insane, the amount of flips and mm. craziness that they that they do. Melbourne's actually the uh, cheer capital of the country. Fun fact. Ah. That, that is a fun fact. So I didn't know this. I live in Melbourne and I've never seen <laughs> this element of my town. So the story is this. Campbell Davis dreams of being captain of the cheerleader squad at Truman High School. But just when the prize is in her grasp, she gets kicked out of school. So what happens to her? Why, why can't Campbell pursue her dream at Truman? Uh, she is sent to another school because she has found that her home has been redistricted and she is forced to go to another school. Okay, (laughs) Bailey, so your character, Bridget, shares Campbell's fate. She's been redistricted as well. Who is she? What does she want out of life as she goes off to this new school where they don't have a cheerleading troop? Well, Bridget at Truman is completely misunderstood and treated terribly and um, she has no self-confidence and she's just is, that's her fate and that's what she thinks she is. And then she goes to Jackson and everyone embraces her for her quirks and and yeah, and she's a bit bigger as well, which is something that is looked down upon at Truman, whereas in Jackson they embrace her for her curves and it's beautiful and it's so nice. And right. just and just on that, yeah. actually, um, the comment about the, the, the sexist nature of cheerleading, it's interesting because I think what this show encourages women to do is mm. it's okay to be competitive and it's also okay to support each other. Absolutely. And I think especially when Bridget goes to Jackson – that community that, 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 that's there that celebrates her is something that is worth witnessing. So it has a lot of heart. It does. So it yeah. really does. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's talk some more in a minute, but we'll, we'll have a song. Um, what, what are we going to hear? It Ain't No Thing. Okay, what do we need to know about It Ain't No Thing? <laughs> well, just what we were talking about. It's Literally. about these two, Nordica and La Cienega, being like, no, Bridget, it's okay to embrace who you are, is mm-hmm. essentially what this song is. All right, so it's a song to Bridget. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. All right, take it away. All right. There's a saying that I learned passed down from centuries, which translated from the French means sister plays. Girl, you're special. 
you're rough, yeah, but you're a gem And if people haven't seen it, well, hey, that's on them So you've got a little baby fat, it ain't no thing, yeah Look at Twig, he's done with that, it ain't no thing, yeah Now I walk around like you're made of asbestos When Twig loves your eyes your thighs and your breast is so shake like jello on a spring it ain't no thing yeah it ain't no thing oh some kids used to tease me and put me through hell some people are mean but, but most people mean well it's just their thinking it's sinking and a little outdated or maybe they're merely uneducated Thing. Yeah, I'm daddy's little big surprise. It ain't nothing. Yeah, love who you are, and the world will adore you. And the couple that don't, at least they can't ignore you. Now, boys don't wanna buy me bling. It ain't nothing. Nah, 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 hey, hey. Yeah. Take little pieces of life Treat yourself to the seven cost meal oh, oh, I've been hating on myself unnecessarily no, no, I'm here no. to stay now feeling great Celebrating me yeah, I got yeah. a big powerful soul It's good as any other Ooh, And I think oh. of you as sisters From another mother Yeah, I got some junk up in my trunk It ain't no thing It ain't no thing Twig thinks I'm sexy, who'd have thunk? You better think! That freedom runs! Freedom, 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 yeah. freedom runs! I'm too hesitating, time to get off the pot! You, you can, can give love, you can get love, long as you love what you got! Got a French kiss with tongue, like I dreamed I'd do! And not just with my pillow, but with you! No! You've got the spirit now, girl, dang! Look at all the joy you bring! Tell him that you are free Friday night. Gosh darn it, I will. Language, honey child, please. It And that's just the quiet number. <laughs> Bailey Carson, Marty Alex, and Sam Prosese performing It Ain't No Thing with Sam Looms on the piano. It occurs to me, Alistair Smith, as the director, you've got a pretty easy job. I mean, you don't need to build these people up. You don't need At to tell them what all. to do. They are so Amazing. <laughs> I am very, very lucky with this cast. It, they are just incredible. I just sit and get entertained yeah. every day at rehearsals. It's fantastic. That's what I would do. I'd just say, do what you want, guys. <laughs> Marty, tell us about your character, La Cienega. Yeah, La Cienega. Yeah. 
So La Cienega is a male to female transgendered character in this show. Um, she is a student at Jackson High. And um, what I think is so special about this character is that it does acknowledge that transgender identity, but there is no cynicism about it in the show. It's about celebrating her difference as well as her being part of this community that embraces her. Alice, so many years ago, I taught at a school that I reckon is a bit like this, a school in inner Melbourne. And yep. it was the kids who uh, fostered the culture of tolerance yep. and diversity. It wasn't the staff. I mean, the staff were on board, but it was the kids who were transmitting to each other that if you come here, it's okay, whatever you do. It was just a glorious place to be. Yeah, and that's that's really what this Jackson School is, and it's, uh, it's been strangely written in a way where there is actually no authority figures. So there's no teachers. We don't ever see a teacher. We don't ever see a parent. It's we just see these communities of um, teenagers working out how to navigate the world, which is quite remarkable. Now, Marty and Sam, you're both. Uh, in this, and you were in The Heights, uh, which Hayes Theatre did in yes. Sydney, also by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yes. Uh, can you feel common ground between these two shows? Or Definitely. Yeah. Uh, I can really feel that kind of like hip-hoppy flavour with a bit of rap infused in there mm. and um, feels really nice to sing. It's really stuff. amazing as people of colour in this industry yes. to have those kinds of lyrics and that kind of music that Lin gives. Um, so we've been very lucky. We've been past. very lucky. <laughs> we got to stop. Can you just give me one more big finish? Just the last. Let's sort of, go, Bailey. Just the last. You want to sing it again? <laughs> now you go find that boy. You tell him that you are free Friday night. Gosh darn it, I will. Language, honey child, please. Bring it on. The director is Alistair Smith. The assistant musical director going mental on the piano is Sam Looms. You've met performers Bailey Carson, Marty Alex and Samantha Prusese. And you can see Bring It On in Melbourne. It's playing at the Athenaeum Theatre till the 27th of July, then to Perth from the 8th to the 18th of August and then in Sydney State Theatre in August through to the first week of September. And that, my friends, is the program for today. The Stage Show is produced by Kim Jurek. The executive producer of Arts on RN is Sky Kirkham. And technical production today was by the marvellous, the irreplaceable Ari Gross. Let's do this again very, very soon. I'm Michael Cathcart. This is RN. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.